Now, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes I have trouble visualising how big some big things are. And it's almost as if the bigger the thing is, the harder I have of sometimes visualising it. For example, Lake Burundong out there near Wellington. They tell me that Lake Burundong, when it's full, has a capacity of about 1.2 million megalitres of water. And I think to myself, wow, 1.2 million, that sounds a lot. But in all honesty, I, I, don't under, I don't get how big that is. I actually need something more tangible. I need comparisons that I can relate to. And so when I'm then told that the capacity of Lake Burundong is three times the capacity of Sydney Harbour, now I'm starting to think, well, OK, that's a lot of water. Better still, when someone tells me that if I turn on my bath tap full ball and I let it run 24-7, the time it would take for my bath, uh, bathroom tap to drain Lake Burundong uh, uh, would be about 250,000 years. <laughs> in other words, to have been able to drain the lake by now, my tap would have had to have been turned on back in the Paleolithic age. And I'm starting to think, what, now I get that that is a lot of water. But I needed those sorts of comparisons that I could relate to. Now, friends, in some ways, that's effectively what today's passage does for us in terms of the holiness of God. It's a passage designed to help us get just how holy he is. Because, I mean, even this morning, uh, we've sung hymns about holy, holy, holy. And we've had our kids sing, holy is our God. But do we really appreciate the dimensions of what that even means. Well, that's where today's passage comes into its own. It's a passage where Isaiah sees a vision of God and as the passage unfolds through what Isaiah saw and then what Isaiah said and then what Isaiah hears, all those things help us to appreciate in ways that we can relate to the holiness of God. Now... Why does Isaiah want us to get the holiness of God anyway? Well, it's because this chapter is the start of the book proper of Isaiah. You can actually tell that by the way it opened in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that's quite a specific date. Much more detail than we have been used to. More precise detail. Because up until now, chapters 1 to 5, they've served as the introduction to the book. And if you've been here, hopefully you've realised that they've introduced us to the grand plan of God. They've shown us God's ambitious plan to transform the earth by punishing rebels, purifying the repentant. But up until now, it's been a plan that we've only had very general detail, not real details, general terms about. We've seen some important things, but it's really been in quite broad categories. What happens now, though, from chapter 6 on, as we enter the book proper, is that that plan gets filled in with more and more and more detail. And the detail that gets filled in first is the holiness of God. Because until we get the holiness of God straight in our head, we will not make sense of certain important aspects of the plan. And so Isaiah experiences firsthand, through a vision, the holiness of God. In, what did it say? The year that King Uzziah died. And you know, even just the mention of that start, should set us start to think about how holy God is. Because you see, King Uzziah was a king who started well but finished badly. 
What happened was that filled with pride late in his reign, King Uzziah entered entered the temple of God to burn incense. And that was something that God had said only priests were allowed to do. But King Uzziah was so full of himself, he totally underestimated the holiness of God, burned the incense, and because of that, God struck Uzziah down with leprosy. And so here we are in the year that the king who underestimated the holiness of God, in the year that he died... Isaiah sees a vision that further highlights the holiness of God. What did he see? Well, try and visualise it as I reread it. Verse 1 again. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah sees God seated as King Almighty on a lofty throne. And it is an overwhelming sight, as really, in a sense, all he can really see is just the tip and the end of God's robe. But even that is enough to completely fill the temple. And in verse 3, he sees seraphs, literally fiery ones, who are flying around God, but they're covering their eyes and their feet, unable to look upon God and trying to cover themselves from before him. Such is his glory. Such is the utter brilliance of God's presence. And as they try and shield themselves from God's brilliance, they, they praise his holiness, singing about how God's splendor isn't just limited to a temple. The whole earth is full of his glory. And even as they sing about him, just a song about God shakes the temple like a massive earthquake. All in all, it's a vision which which emphasises the otherness of God, if I can put it like that. Because that is what holiness means. To be holy means to be different. To be holy means to be set apart. To be holy means to be distinctive. And that is what we see of God here. That he is so different to us. He is so beyond us. He is so dauntingly big, so blindingly perfect, so glorious and majestic and powerful. It puts him in a league exceedingly beyond us. So much so that even here the the seraphs can't can't bear it and they're shielding themselves from it. And as for poor old Isaiah, it is way too much for him. And so seeing this vision... It doesn't produce rapture or fascination in him. Uh, He doesn't say, oh, wow, that looks so cool. What does he say? Verse 5. Woe to me. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. As Isaiah considers that he who is unclean, in other words, he who is sinful... As he considers that he has seen God, he is overcome with grief. He is traumatised because God is so holy and so perfect that he cannot come into contact with sin. And so Isaiah knows that if, if that is ever to happen, if sin ever gets anywhere near God, that is such an obscene thing to happen. It is so inappropriate that whatever is sinful, whatever is unclean, must be completely obliterated so that there is no trace left. And that is exactly what happens time and time and time again in the Bible. Anyone... 
any time in the Bible, when they come anywhere vaguely close to the presence of God, when they even get a glimmer of his holiness, they are always utterly overwhelmed by feelings of unworthiness and how unsuitable it is that they could be anywhere near him. It's not a bad corrective to the way we often think. We are so often so flippant and casual about God that we visualise him as some sort of just cosmic, bigger version of ourselves who would, of course, be able to be buddy-buddies with. Nothing could be further from the truth. Such is the holiness of God that we do not deserve to have anything to do with someone like him. That is how Isaiah felt. You would have felt it too if you'd been there. And yet something truly remarkable happens. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Extraordinary. Having confessed his own sinfulness before God, Isaiah is now cleansed. And here's the thing. Look at how it happens. A coal taken from the altar of God on which sacrifices are made, it touches him on the lips. Now, friends, this is worth filing away. Okay? Because back in chapter 1, you might remember in that general introduction, we heard about God's offer to wash sins as white as snow. A staggering offer, but up until now, there's been no indications whatsoever as to exactly how that would happen. How it could happen. How do you make sins disappear like that? Well, the picture has just got a little bit clearer. Okay, there's a lot more to say. We've got 60 chapters still to go in the book. But we've got a little bit of an insight here. Firstly, Isaiah is cleansed from a coal from the altar. So it sounds like a sacrifice is going to have something to do with this cleansing. A sacrifice of what, though? A sacrifice made by whom? Watch this space. More importantly, though, significantly in the context of this chapter, is that the atoning of sin, the removal of guilt from Isaiah, it's not achieved by Isaiah doing anything, is it? It comes from God's own initiative. And the fact that it has to be God's initiative, the fact that it has to be God himself who does it, if you think about it, is also a comment about how holy he must be. Because remember, holiness is about distinction. It's about separateness. And God is so separate from us. God is, the difference between him is so vast. The gap between his holiness and our sin is so massive that only God himself is capable of bridging that. We haven't got a chance of doing anything to get ourselves close to God. If we're going to have any hope of being anywhere near the presence of God, it's going to have to be God who does it. Such is his holiness. Now, friends... For us, this side of the cross and Jesus Christ, this is a tantalising glimpse ahead of what God will ultimately do through Jesus' death and resurrection, isn't it? That our sin is atoned for once for all. Our guilt is removed once for all through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We're getting a teaser of that event now. Again, a loving act of God's doing and his doing alone. We are saved by grace. We contribute nothing. We have nothing worth contributing. For God is so holy. The gulf between him and us so vast. The only one who can possibly bridge that 
is God. Stay and get a sense of the holiness of God. Well, back to Isaiah, because if all this isn't enough, God's holiness is even further emphasised by what he now hears. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. God said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding, Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their ears, hear with their, sorry, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God wants Isaiah to be a messenger and the message he wants to deliver is one of judgment. A message that even as it is being delivered, it will in fact have the effect of hardening hearts and entrenching Israel even further in their stubborn rebelliousness. A message that will actually make them more rebels than they are now. Which is quite a confronting message. Speaks volumes of the sovereignty of God for starters. But please don't understand the tone of it. When God says there, otherwise they might see with their ears and hear with the, uh, uh, see with their eyes and hear with their ears, don't think of people, don't think of people who honestly want to follow God, but God is deliberately shutting them out so they don't have a chance. No, no, what's being said here is that judgment for these people is now inevitable. That after years of arrogance and indifference to God, as we saw last week, after decades and decades of pushing God aside, after being that unproductive vineyard that we thought about last week, after all of that, the horses bolted. Judgment is now, unavail- is, judgment is now unavoidable. There are no more chances. And God is going to make sure that there's no other chances by Isaiah being commissioned to preach a message that will only serve them to send them further down the path of rebellion that they're already on. Which is not happy news to deliver. And so understandably, Isaiah asks in verse 11, how long he's got to do that? God replies, verse 11, until the cities lie ruined, without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. Israel is going to be laid waste. Everyone sent away and Isaiah is to keep preaching that it will happen until it happens. All of which highlights yet again the holiness of God by pointing out to us that he cannot be trifled with. You can't expect to show God unresponsiveness and indifference and expect to get away with it. You can't expect to show him empty lip service and insincerity and think you're going to get off scot-free. Who do we think we are in the light of the holiness of us pipsqueaks? Think we can ignore him? He is the God whose glory fills the entire earth. He is the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, whom you obey or he will terrify you. So, starting to see how the passage fits. From what Isaiah sees, a vision of God seated on high, surrounded by seraphs, singing about his holiness. To what Isaiah says, 
confessing his unworthiness before this holy God. To what he hears, he has to pronounce judgment on Israel for rebelling against this holy God. Today's passage just keeps ramping up and up and up. The holiness of God keeps wanting us to get the perspective right between us and God. Keeps wanting us to understand the otherness of God. Keeps pushing us to get our heads around the extent to which God's glory and his dominion and his power and his sovereignty is so far beyond us. And I think that, at least in part, the reason for all of this is so that we may now appreciate the privilege of being his people. Which explains why, at the very end of the chapter, all about the holiness of God, it all finishes with mention of an intriguing holy seed. Look with me at how the chapter closes out in verse 13 where after describing how Israel is going to be laid waste basically like a forest levelled of trees yet in verse 13 we read but as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down so the holy seed will be the stump in the land now there's an intriguing way to finish a chapter like this it suggests regrowth It's an image of just this single shoot in a devastated forest and that after the destruction, a holy seed, a holy people will emerge. Holy, remember, means to be different, to be separate, to be distinctive. That's what this people will be, a people separated from all others by God, a people set apart, a people who will have survived judgment, a people who will be distinctive and cared for by a holy God. And friends, an ending like this, in a chapter like this, draws you in and makes you want to be part of that. I mean, virtually everything in the chapter has made us feel the force of how separate we are from a holy God. Just about everything has made us feel the weight of how undeserving we are to be before him. Also, we could now feel the almost incomprehensible privilege of being able to have anything to do with him, let alone be part of his people, which, of course, we are in Jesus Christ. As I mentioned earlier, our sin is atoned for once for all. Our guilt is removed once for all. Our sins have been made white as snow through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And we are able to approach the holy God, in absolute confidence and assurance. That is staggering. And it is something that ought to flood our lives with just a sense of joy and a renewed sense of thanksgiving that puts everything else in its place. Evidently, last Friday was the uh, random act of kindness day. And uh, over in Detroit, uh, the police celebrated the day by giving out $10 gift cards to Subway for people who were driving safely and obeying the road rules. Uh, So someone stops at a stop sign and they get put over by the police and they get given a $10 card. Well, the Detroit papers were full of all these stories of people who were saying how to transform their days 
Uh, they put a smile in their face. They weren't expecting it. Usually a cop pulls you over and you're thinking, oh, what did I do wrong? And then all of a sudden they get a, a free treat. Friends, if that's what a $10 gift card the subway does for people, how much more should Thanksgiving be part of our lives? Because of the privilege that we enjoy through Jesus Christ. Because of him, our guilt and sin has been paid for and we get to be the people of the Holy Lord God Almighty whose glory fills the entire earth. Look, when I consider the things that I worry about, the things that I stress over, the things I chase after in this world, some of them have a place, lots of them don't, but all of them pale into insignificance against the privilege of being one of God's people. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and even just the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And can you believe it? We get to be his people. I'll pray. Father, thank you for your generosity in reminding us of your holiness. Thank you for the utter, undeserved privilege of having anything to do with you, let alone to be speaking directly to you now and you listen and you care and you love. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Amen.